Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, and welcome to a very special City Club Forum. I'm Paul Clark, the Regional President of PNC Bank, and we are proud supporters of the City Club. It's a humbling honor to be with all of you today to introduce our program, recognition, and remembrance of what is arguably one of the most important speeches of the 20th century, Robert F. Kennedy's Mindless Menace of Violence Address. That speech was delivered at a City Club of Cleveland event on the day following the assassination of Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. The City Club has provided a venue for thousands of speeches in its 105-year history, but no other speech is so widely remembered, referenced, quoted, or shared. Sadly, every time another act of violence captures the public's attention, we are reminded of this speech and in recent years, it's likely you've all seen it shared on social media. What you might not know is that Robert F. Kennedy almost didn't deliver this speech, or any speech for that matter. He was running for the Democratic nomination of president and had planned to give a campaign speech. When Reverend King was killed, the campaign suggested canceling the event. Civic leaders here in Cleveland asked Senator Kennedy to continue with the event, and he worked overnight with his campaign team to draft an entirely new speech, one they hoped would help the nation begin to heal. The speech was given in the ballroom of the Hotel Sheraton Cleveland, now the Renaissance Hotel, and though it was brief, not even 10 minutes, it resonated far beyond Cleveland and Ohio. Today we're so grateful that Robert F. Kennedy's daughter, Carrie Kennedy, is here. She is president of Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights, a nonprofit advocacy organization that works to advance her father's vision of a peaceful and just world. Carrie Kennedy is going to talk about her father's speech, and then we'll watch parts of Senator Kennedy deliver the remainder. Afterwards, Ms. Kennedy will sit down with WKYC Channel 3 news anchor Russ Mitchell and senior pastor Reverend Todd C. Davidson of Antioch Baptist Church for a conversation about its continued residence today. And with that, let's begin today's forum. Good afternoon. It is so great to be back at the Cleveland City Club, and I just want to say a special thanks to our dear family friend, Tim Hagen, for, uh, for inviting me here uh, over a year ago and suggesting this and, uh, and being with us here today. Um, 
Paul, thanks for that introduction, uh, and thank you all for coming. The, the, um, I, I want to just talk, set the stage a little bit for this speech in addition to what Paul has already said. Um, so Daddy was in, India, in Indiana, and he was campaigning there, um, and it was key to win that state. Otherwise, his campaign really would not have legitimacy going forward. And he, he, he spoke at Ball State, he got, and as he got onto the plane, someone ca came to him and said that Dr. King had been shot. And when he arrived in Indianapolis, um, he was told that Dr. King had died. And he, there was a, a rally that evening that was organized by the great civil rights activist John Lewis, uh, the, the, the freedom writer, now Congressman John Lewis, and um, there were a thousand people waiting in the largest African-American neighborhood waiting for my father to go and speak. Richard Luger was the mayor of Indiana and said to him, you shouldn't go because it's too dangerous. Cities across the country are already starting to riot and burn. And um, not only should you not go, but I will not allow my police to escort you if you decide to go because it's too dangerous for them. And uh, my father then um, got word that John Lewis was saying, you need to come. And he got in the car, and he went and gave a speech. And, and that speech is very, very well known. And he calmed the waters, and, and uh, 125 cities started to burn that night, and uh, Indianapolis did not. He canceled all of the rest of his campaign schedule. Through the, um, through the funeral of Dr. King. But as Paul mentioned, um, people asked, and community leaders in Cleveland said, we really need you to keep this event. He wanted to come to Cleveland because he heard from community leaders across the country that um, white, the white city fathers across the United States immediately started saying, now we don't owe the black community anything because they're burning down our cities and we no longer have a responsibility to address their needs. And so he was really asked to come here and talk to that particular issue. And he gave this extraordinary talk, which essentially said, and he said it more tactfully than this, but he said, we built these institutions that have led to this violence, and we've benefited from them, and it's our responsibility to, to address this. And, um, and that was, that's really the essence of the speech, and I'd like to read a, a little bit of it today. Is that okay? He said, there is another kind of violence, slower but just as deadly and destructive, as the shot or the bomb in the night. This is the violence of institutions, indifference, inaction, and decay. This is the violence that afflicts the poor, that poisons relations between men because their skin has different colors. This is the slow destruction of a child by hunger and schools without books and homes without heat in the winter. This is the breaking of a man's spirit by denying him the chance to stand as a father and as a man amongst men. This too afflicts us all, 
For when you teach a man to hate and to fear his brother, when you teach that he is a lesser man because of his color or his beliefs or the policies he pursues, when you teach that those who differ from you threaten your freedom or your job or your home or your family, then you also learn to confront others not as fellow citizens but as enemies to be net, met not with cooperation but with conquest, to be subjugated and to be mastered. We learn at the last to look at our brothers as alien, alien men with whom we share a city but not a community, men bound to us in a common dwelling but not in a common effort. We learn to share only a common fear, only a common desire to retreat from each other, only a common impulse to meet disagreement with force. For all this, there are no final answers for those of us who are American citizens. Yet we know what we must do, and that is to achieve true justice among all our fellow citizens. The question is not what programs we should seek to enact. The question is whether we can find in our own midst and in our own hearts that leadership of humane purpose that will recognize the terrible truths of our existence. We must admit the vanity of our false distinctions, the false distinctions among men, and to learn to find our advancement in search for the advancement of all. We must admit to ourselves that our children's future cannot be built on the mis misfortunes of another's. We must recognize that this short life can neither be ennobled or enriched by hatred or by revenge. Our lives on this planet are too short. The work to be done is too great to let this spirit flourish any longer in this land of ours. Of course, we cannot banish it with a program nor with a resolution. But we can perhaps remember, if only for a time, that those who live with us are our brothers and our sisters, that they share with us the same short moment of life, that they seek as we do, nothing but the chance to live out their lives in purpose and in happiness, winning what satisfaction and fulfillment that they can. Surely, this bond of common fate, surely, this bond of common goals can begin to teach us something. Surely, we can learn, at the least, to look around at those of us, our fellow men, and surely we can begin to work a little harder to bind up the wounds among us and to become in our hearts brothers and countrymen once again. Today, in the spirit of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, let us begin to work a little harder to bind up the wounds. Let us bind up the wounds that have killed over 1.5 million Americans with handguns and military assault weapons, on average 82 people a day since Dr. King and Daddy were gunned down 50 years ago. Let us bind up the wounds of women and men, the vast majority people of color that have ballooned incarceration from 188,000 in 1968 to 2.2 million today because we no longer want to be a nation in which it is better to be rich and guilty than poor and innocent. Let us bind up the wounds of cash bail, 
which sends tens of thousands of high school students to jail instead of to school. Let us bind up the wounds of our native sisters and brothers on whose lands we are guests, yet whose land continues to be exploited by corporate greed in places like Standing Rock. Let us bind up the wounds of the able-bodied laborers whose unions have been decimated but who continue to fight for health care, decent wages, and dignity at work. Let us bind up the wounds which half a century after the Voting Rights Act continue to deny citizens the right to vote. Let us bind up the wounds of hardworking women who have been insulted, pressured, groped, and raped. Women who can expect police and prosecutors and judges to humiliate victims, fail to investigate cases, and dismiss charges. Because attacks on women on campus, at home, or at work have no place in our country. Let us bind up the wounds of farm workers who toil 14 hours a day, seven days a week for Wendy's and Kruger's, which deny the rights of those who grow our food and provide us with our daily bread. Let us bind up the wounds of DACA children who came to our country as infants, graduated from school, landed a job, strengthened our country, fought in our wars, and are threatened with deportation. Let us bind up the wounds of injustice across our land and recommit ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of the world. And now, please watch the videotape. Thank you. There is another kind of violence, slower but just as deadly destructive as the shot or the bomb in the night. This is the violence of institutions, indifference, inaction, and decay. This is the violence that afflicts the poor, that poisons relations between men because their skin has different colors. For when you teach a man to hate and to fear his brother, when you teach that he is a lesser man because of his color, then you also learn to confront others, not as fellow citizens, but as enemies, to be met not with cooperation, but with conquest, to be subjugated and to be mastered. This much is clear. Violence breeds violence. Repression breeds retaliation. And only a cleansing of our whole society can remove this sickness from our souls. We must admit the vanity of our false distinctions and learn to find our own advancement in search 
for the advancement of all. Wow is certainly an understatement. Ms. Kennedy, welcome back to Cleveland. It is good great to, to see you. Good afternoon. Thank you. Reverend Davidson, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Ms. Kennedy, I'm, I'm going to begin with you. Every time you hear that speech, every time you read it, what goes through your head? What strikes you? I, I think, you know, I think this was an incredibly important moment for my father because um, I think he was so impacted by his brother's death and then he was so impacted by Dr. King's death. And um, it was a moment when he just said, this is the only thing I'm going to, this is the only thing that's important. What's really important is healing the divisions in our country. And the only way to do that is to address poverty and to address um, marginalization. And we need to bring people together. And that's really all he talked about for the rest of the campaign. Uh -huh. And this speech was an articulation of that. I actually think that the speech that he gave in Cleveland was, um, w would have always been viewed as the best speech he ever gave, except for the speech that he gave the day before. <laughs> um, and so I think that, uh, but this in sort of, you know, that was spontaneous. This was real content driven and very thoughtful. And it's a, a beautiful, poetic, um, important piece of, of our country's history. You and, were, I'm and, sorry. and let I me just say one other thing. We haven't had that type of division for the last 50 years as we do now. And this speech today is more important maybe than the day it was given. Mm. You, um, you were nine years old. When eight. This, eight years yep. old, sorry. When this speech, close, <laughs> close enough. Close enough. <laughs> when this speech was given. I was eight year old, years old as well when this speech was given. Um, take us back. What is your most vivid memory of the days after the speech, of the days after the assassination? So, um, you know, um, my, I had siblings who were traveling with daddy in Indiana, but I was home in Virginia. And, um, and then when he was here, and then when he, he came home, maybe the, probably straight from here. Uh, and so the next day, I was in, our, in the, our den, and our den was dominated by a television. It was called the TV room. And it was when you walked into Hickory Hill, it was on the lab. And the two of us, and this is kind of weird because I don't know why I didn't have other siblings there because I had 10 brothers and sisters. <laughs> but anyway, um, we were watching the news and Washington was burning. I mean, it was up in flames. And he said, I gotta go do something. And with that, he stood up and he went upstairs and he came down, you know, three minutes later in a suit. And he got in the car, I heard the car go out there. We had cattle guards, so it went when you went over through the driveway. And 10 minutes later, I was still watching the same TV show in that TV room, and there it was. Wow. 
Wow. You know, wow. and he was right in the midst of it. And it, to me, that was, it was, there was such an important moment because it absolutely um, signified what he said to all of his audiences, which is one person can make a difference and you got to try. You got to try. If you think you can do something, you got to try. And I mean, what was he going to do? What was he going to do in the midst of Washington burning? One guy, you know, a senator from New York. He wasn't even from Washington. And he went down there and said, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show up. I'm going to try. And that's a lesson for all of us. Wow. Reverend Davidson, when you hear that speech, what strikes you in relation to what we're seeing today in 2018? I, I think the timelessness of the speech and the prophetic component uh, to the speech, speaking to the higher forms of human nature and its ability across generations uh, to speak to what is going on now. Uh, he couldn't possibly have foreseen what we would be experiencing and encountering 50 years later, but the speech speaks so eloquently to uh, what we're dealing with in our society currently um, and calls us to a higher form of our humanity. And so when I hear that clarion call to the higher forms of our humanity, it's something that moves me and resonates me to, to want to do individually what I can do uh, to, to also speak to those higher forms of our humanity. Senator Kenny sp spoke about in these times of tragedy a common faith. Uh, as a man of faith, are you optimistic that these moments, in fact, do teach us something? I, I do think that they do and can, as long as we're willing to, to learn those lessons uh, from these moments. Uh, I, I believe that, that we have a tremendous opportunity uh, if we collectively utilize the thrust of the speech and take advantage of the opportunities to not be indifferent, uh, to see each other as human beings, to value life. Uh, I think sometimes violence is, is a response to uh, a lack of value, a lack of perceived value in terms of, of society. And, and I think when we, when we provide people with an opportunity to see their own value, when we offer opportunities uh, to be human beings and to see each other as human beings, I, I think we call each other forth uh, to some of those higher ideals of the speech, uh, speaking to us about doing what we individually can do. Uh, in our space, in our time, I think each of us is in our time, in this time, to make, it, make the kind of difference that Senator Kennedy talked about in that speech. And I think we can do it uh, if, we, if we call forth those, those elements of our human nature uh, that see each other. Ms. Kennedy, historian, some historians have called the relationship between your father and Martin Luther King complicated, uh, depending on where they both were in history. Your, your dad is attorney general, a senator, then a senator running for president. Do you agree with that? And also, what do you think these two guys had in common? Well, uh, I think that they had a lot more in common than they had separated. So I think that they, um, they both believed in the capacity of one person to make a difference. They both believed in a loving community. They both had a deep sense of faith. Um, they both uh, believed in democracy, the importance of the vote. Um, and they both saw in our, they, they were both against the Vietnam War. They both saw in our country a deepening division and a need for healing and a need for reconciliation, for bringing people together. And they were both 
um, animated by a moral imagination. And I think so everything that was important about them, they had in common. Um, but they both had different roles to play. And, uh, and those, I think those roles kept them apart. Now, what's kind of interesting is that, um, you know, my father and Martin Luther King were not close. But he was close with other leaders in the movement. So he was, he was close with Harry Belafonte. He was close with uh, John Lewis. John Lewis organized that rally in Indianapolis. And John Lewis had volunteered to, um, to work for Daddy in the, in the presidential campaign. And actually, this is so amazing. He and Cesar Chavez went door to door in Los Angeles trying to get votes. Can you imagine opening your door and seeing John Lewis and Cesar Chavez <laughs> saying, will you vote for this guy? I mean, mm. amazing. But, that, but they did that. Um, so I think that uh, you know they they weren't close, but they were on the same path. And I think um, if they had both lived out their lives, I think they would have been very close, you know, as time went on. Uh, and I think the Poor People's Campaign, which was actually uh, uh, my father's idea, which I'm happy to talk about that, but. Uh, was an indication of that, of that movement. Reverend David Center, people looking for hope when you talk to your congregation, what kind of things are they saying to you? Absolutely. Uh, looking for just glimpses that, that there's something that's in each of us that is going to allow us to recover from uh, some of the, the damage that is done by violence and poverty. Um, I, I think it, hope is, that hope quotient is what all people are, are genuinely looking for. Uh, whether it's people in my congregation, it's uh, students at Bolton Elementary School in the Fairfax neighborhood in Cleveland. Uh, no matter where you are, you want, you, you want to believe that there is something you can aspire to achieve and that you have all possibilities and all of the opportunities uh, that are afforded to any other person who's in this nation, that I have that opportunity. Um, I ha had an opportunity uh, a couple of years back to uh, speak with Governor Kasich, and one of the things that I shared with him was uh, that, that my job is, as a clergy person, is to ensure that every student, every child that wakes up in every city of, of the state of Ohio believes that one day they can do your job. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not they, they decide to run for office, that's completely up to them. But, the, but they should believe, they should have hope that they one day could achieve what you have achieved. And I said, either you're going to work with me to achieve that end, <laughs> or you'll work against me to achieve that end. But if you work against me to achieve that end, then I also am going to work against you. Um, and so I, I think that's, that gener genuinely is what people are, are looking for. And, and when I hear that speech, I hear a hint of hope. Mm -hmm. a, a hint, it, it wasn't a, a, um, a speech that just abandons the ideals that America was founded on. But I hear a hint that, a hint of hope that we can get there. Uh, and I hear that through Dr., of course, all, all of Dr. King's uh, speeches and presentations, that there's always a note and insistence on, on hope. And so, yes, I think people mm. uh, throughout this nation, throughout the world, are looking for signs of hope. 
We're going to get to your questions in just a second. Ms. Kennedy, let me wrap this part of our program up by asking you. Your dad would have been 92 years old if he was here today. What do you think he would think about what's going on in this country? Well, I think I I'm, I'm sort of went through a little bit of a litany, but I think he would say we, you know, boycott Wendy's. Um, Reverend, Reverend Jackson yesterday called on us to boycott Kroger. They're both from Ohio, so you guys can actually put some pressure on those guys. Uh, thank you. <laughs> you know, bolster the unions. We need the unions. The unions are there for a good reason. Thank you. I love this crowd. <laughs> Um, you know, we, we need to, to look at mass incarceration. It's crazy what we're doing to people in this country. We have more people in jail than any per, per capita than any country on earth. That's insane. What are we doing? And denying people the vote. So on and on, just I, I sort of went through that. I think that those would be the issues that my father would be talking about, Standing Rock, um, uh, the Me Too movement with women. I mean... Every woman in this room, every single woman in this room has been sexually harassed in her life. Wow. How about that? Oh, your mother, your mother, all of your sisters, your daughters. If you have daughters, if it hasn't happened, it's going to happen. We've got to stop this. So I think that those are, um, are the things that my father would be concerned about. And then, you know, it's really interesting reading that speech because he talks about um, having, uh, uh, making the decision that um, anybody, that the only way you can win is if somebody else loses. And this is really resonates, resonant of the President of the United States right now. The only way to, uh, to negotiate something is through dominance and subjugation and war and violence. And um, that's, that's not, I don't believe that that's what the American people want our country to be about. And I don't think that that's what my father believed and it's not what Dr. King believed. And I don't think that's what most Americans want for our country. We want to be a place of, of understanding and love and compassion towards people who suffer. It is time now for the City Club mid-break announcement. We're enjoying a special City Club forum commemorating the mindless menace of violent speech featuring Kerry Kennedy, President of the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights, and Antioch Baptist Church Senior Pastor Reverend Todd C. Davidson. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. If you look around, there are a couple of microphones around the room, so make your way there if you have a question. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via our webcast. If you would like to tweet a question, please tweet it at at the City Club, and our staff will try to work it into the program. Okay, let's get to the questions. I'm going to begin right over there. Go ahead. Uh, good afternoon. I just want to say I'm, I'm just so honored to have you in our presence today. Um, my name is Merle Johnson. I'm a member of the State Board of Education, and having taught for 40 years, I am just so fascinated by the teachers who are uh, striking and walking out uh, in Oklahoma and, and Kentucky and Arizona, started by the brave souls in West Virginia. And, and I just, I know you get a lot of questions like, what would your father think? This is one of those questions. Um, <laughs> what do you think your father, how do you think your father would feel? What would be uh, his message to those teachers who are, are fighting back because of the terrible conditions that they have to teach in and students have to attend school in? 
I mean, I imagine he'd say, strike on. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think that, um, that what's happened in so many of the red states in our country is that um, the governors of those states have sought to, uh, to claim credit for, um, for their fiscal responsibility, but they've done it on the backs of decimating the social structures that are necessary for, for people to have decent lives and for their states and eventually to go on to uh, economic development. So they've decimated the school budgets and they've, they've taken away um, housing budgets and they've, um, and they've harmed the university systems which are necessary to, uh, for, for uh, economic drivers. Um, and they are harming the people within their states more and more and more. And um, this is just one example of it. And I think that it's great that people are standing up and the teachers are standing up and saying, no, we won't take this. Let me just add one more thing to this about teachers, the teachers union in particular, because I think this is an important point that people don't focus on. Most of the people in the teachers union, who are they? They're women. Don't, 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 don't let this pass you by. This is an attack on women. This is an attack by powerful white men on women who have decent middle class jobs. And that's part of what's happening. Thank you for your question. I'm going to go to this side. Yes, here. Mrs. Yes. Kenny, my name is Henry Ledwell, Reverend Ledwell. I'd like, like to say I'm sorry about your father's death, but at the same time, what can we do about violence as clergymen in the city of Cleveland? Well, I'm so glad you asked that. I think that we need to take this opportunity in from the pulpit and talk about the death of Dr. King and talk about the death of my father and challenge people and say, we, we're not gonna accept this in our society anymore. Who do we wanna be? I mean, I think it's really, really important to get up there on Sundays and say that. And the other thing that I think is important is, uh, you know, quoting Dr. King, the, the, the most segregated hour of the week is 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings in our country. And we gotta reach out to different communities. And I mean, I would encourage your congregation, you know what, I don't wanna see you in church next Sunday. Go, go to another church, go to a church of a, a, a different faith in a different community and let's all come back and have a conversation about that and see how we can come together. This church for two years, I've been to Dr. Mosby, Professor Dickens, and Dr. Rucker, three doctors in theology. You know, so I know about the ministry. And Dr. Martin Luther King is my brother. Thank you and God bless you. God bless, bless you. you. Thank you. Herbert Davis, you want to add anything to that? Um, interestingly, he, he asked the uh, Cleveland Foundation is in, in the city of Cleveland is one of the organizations that is promoting this kind of cross-cultural worship experience because one of the things that we've discovered is there are things that uh, are discussed in one church relative to violence and gun violence and, and gun issues that may not be discussed in any other church. And so how do we take uh, our commitment to humanity and our commitment to love and building a society that's, that's loving and the Cleveland Foundation is promoting some of that uh, through some of its work in the faith communities. And so we are, as a part of our, our congregation is participating 
with uh, some of our synagogues and some of our mosques in this kind of pulpit exchange that we'll be engaging in over the course of the next two years where our congregations will be worshiping in other environments and in other spaces where we will be speaking in other environments and other spaces to build this kind of coalition around promoting solidarity and love and promoting uh, the values that who, who as, as uh, Ms. Kennedy said, who do we want to be as citizens first of this city? Who, who do we want to be? Who do, when people say Cleveland, what do we want them to say about, about us? Uh, we want to continue to be the city of hope. Mm -hmm. uh, and, that, and if we're going to maintain our position as a city of hope, then requ it requires that kind of cross-cultural, uh, cross yeah. uh, cross-denominational, uh, interfaith uh, opportunities. And, I, and so I, I had to shout out the Cleveland Foundation mm -hmm. just because they're doing that work and they're, yeah. they're facilitating that work. Great, great work. Great, yeah. great. Mm -hmm. Let's go uh, to my left side, please. Your question. I feel honored to be here today, too. Um, the Sunday, March 18, uh, print edition of the New York Times contained an excellent article by Richard Kallenberg of the Century Foundation about your father's appeal to both blue-collar white voters and black voters. Uh, why do you think your father was able to forge that coalition, and why have few politicians since been able to do that? Um, thanks for that question. You know, uh, I, I, I think that there has been a deliberate um, separation of uh, between poor and working class blue collar workers and um, and and people of color, and that is just classic throughout history of pitting people against each other so that they're not um, trying to change the status quo, and I think that that's worked. And my father sought to go and bring those those two groups together. And I think the, the way he was able to do that is he spent a lot of time listening, a lot of time. And, uh, you know, we, I was in Indianapolis yesterday, and so uh, that's so much on my mind, that's why I keep talking about it. But um, that was a state where 9% of the the vote was in 1968 was African-American, and Daddy ended up with nine out of 10 voters in the African-American community. The rest of the state was blue collar white, and they, or most of it was, and they had voted overwhelmingly for George Wallace four years earlier. So, um, and everybody said, you can't possibly win. And he, um, he said, the the only way to do this is to go and talk and listen. And he spent a lot of time with farmers, and he heard what they had to say about the difficulties of running a family farm. And he spoke back to them on that. And he listened to the struggles that the blue-collar workers were having that time. And he spoke back to them. And I think that speech, when Dr. King died, really also made a huge difference to people because they walked away saying, I don't agree with him on all the issues, but I believe he's somebody with a, with a soul and who cares. That's my phone. I'm so sorry. It's okay. That's my phone. Can you, can you just go in my purse and just take it out? <laughs> I, I, I don't have a purse issue like some women. Thank you. Thanks, Gail. Gail, fix it. Thanks. That's so embarrassing. That happened. I, uh, anyway, so there you go. I'm so glad that happened when I was thinking, not you. <laughs> yeah. 
So thank thanks. you very much. Thanks. Yeah. Right side now. Yes. Thank you for uh, being guest today. Uh, my question is for you, Ms. Kennedy. Uh, you mentioned the boycott against Wendy's, and I'm uh, hoping you can elaborate for folks in the room who might not be aware. I believe you're referring to the Coalition of Immokalee Workers uh, Fair Food Campaign. Exactly. And uh, you know, I've had the opportunity to learn a little bit about that, but for folks who are in the room Great. who aren't aware of Go for it. Go for it. Tell us. Well, go, 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 well go. I, I'm, I'm not a, a member of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, but um, there was a coalition out of Immokalee, Florida, of uh, farm workers who decided to organize, uh, not from a union, but to, to at least organize amongst themselves. And instead of going to the farm owners, go directly to the um, purchasers of the tomatoes that they grow there and ask for uh, one penny more per bucket of uh, tomatoes. And they started back in the early 2000s, and they were able to get a lot of the big uh, you know, fast food chains that you might think of on board. The remaining holdout is Wendy's in Columbus, Ohio. And I know they've been struggling for years to try and get Wendy's because you think about it, you can get McDonald's, you can get Burger King, you can get Taco Bell. Why can't we get Wendy's? And Walmart. And, and Walmart. <laughs> and so, um, I mean, I guess if I can make a, 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 a plea to, to those in the audience, but if you could also, um, as you already have, um, Thanks. To, to join that boycott against Wendy's mm -hmm. and to tell others that, uh, you know, friends and family to, to join and, and why, right? Yeah. Thank you. Thank good. You Very good. Very good. Hi, your question on my left, please. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much for being here. I would say that this event is completely inspiring and it is, in, in fact, itself a ripple of hope as, as your father had quoted the Greek poets and as inscribed on his grave. Uh, thank you, Dan, for, for bringing, bringing this together and Mr. Clark. My question broadly is I, I run a, a nonprofit uh, here in Cleveland, uh, Lutheran Metropolitan Ministry, and we do job training most, mostly for people with a record. Uh, we do have a large job training kitchen. So we're trying to be part of that, the sort of solutions uh, that a, a movement I think can, can be based on. But my question's a little broader, and that is either for you, Ms. Kennedy, or for Reverend Davidson. What, what would you say to us, we who would presume to pick up the torch, uh, I would identify a kind of poverty of ideas, actually, in our current culture. And I wonder what you might say to us who may not have been around uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, but what you might say to us on a kind of movement building level uh, today, those of us who, who might want to carry forward some of the causes and movements you're talking about. Uh, because I think, we, I think we have, we need the higher level discussion. Uh, we need ideas. We need good ideas. We need ideas that do bring people together. I wonder what you might say to at that sort of level of conversation. Thank you. How do you do it, I guess, right? <laughs> I mean, I think that, um, first of all, congratulations to the work you're doing. You're doing it. Yes. That is great. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think, you know, in terms of ideas about what to do, I, you know, I always go back to the people closest to the problem or closest to the solution. So if you're working with people who are formerly incarcerated, I'd ask them, what do you need? Um, what, how do you see the future? How can we support that? How can we avoid other people getting caught up in the, in the criminal justice system? How do we do... I don't, I don't know what the bail issue is here, but if it's at, like, New York, how do we get rid of cash bail, and how do we address all those issues? And I think that you're, you'll get a lot of ideas really friggin' quickly. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks. But, uh, you know, I think sort of more broadly that, um, that all of us share two things in common. All of us who are human beings share two things in common. We, 
We share suffering and we share love. And um, I think that, uh, that that's really what brings us together. And those, those are, if you can search for both of those in, in other people and have empathy for their suffering and an open heart to, to love them and to be receptive to their love, then, um, then those larger ideas flow uh, across all boundaries. I, I think, oh yeah, okay. thank you. Um, I, I also think that one of, one of the challenges that we face is transitioning from silos of service uh, to providing a sanctuary of service. And, and so if we could ever find a way for uh, us to collectively, because there, there are a lot of organizations doing a lot of good, good things so I don't, I don't know that there's a poverty of ideas as much as there is a disconnection between the work that's being done. If there was ever a way for us to combine our efforts and to provide th this kind of sanctuary of, of coverage and service for humanity, um, and, in, and in keeping with uh, what Ms. Kennedy said, I, I think, again, asking the people um, that, that we're serving, our brothers and our sisters that are, are crying out for the service, asking them what they need. There's a, there was a ministry that was going to Haiti for a number of years, and they were taking Cleveland Indians T-shirts to Haiti every year, Cleveland Indians T-shirts. And after 20 years of doing that, they finally decided to ask the people they were going to help what they needed, and they said, well, we don't need any more Cleveland Indians <laughs> t-shirts. Uh, what we need are textbooks and we need water filtration systems. And, and, and so when they had a conversation, they were able to better, better address those needs. Uh, so I think through those conversations and through the conversations between organizations that are doing this kind of work, I think we can provide a kind of safe haven uh, of service for uh, the people of our city and, and the people of our nation. Yes. Thank you. Your question, please. Thank you. Thank you very much for being here. My name is Rosemary Gornick, and I am a 40-year educator, retired superintendent, and currently assistant professor at Kent State University. And I have the pleasure of being with two tables filled with educators, the Greater Cleveland Schools Superintendents Association, the Buckeye Association of School Administrators, and the Educational Service Center of Northeast Ohio. So, um, yeah, yeah, you guys. <laughs> um, it's a great segue from this last conversation because education can address so many of the ills of society. In fact, I believe, and I'll speak for myself, the very work in schools is a place where we can do that. And we've gotten so far afield of that <laughs> because it seems that an education now is more about getting a job and taking the dog on test. Um, but my question for you is, what can we do now as a group of educators? And um, do you have ideas? And we'd like to be used and great. offer our help. Yeah, <laughs> thank you for that great question. Okay, so um, at Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights, we have a human rights education program. It's called Speak Truth to Power and it's taught uh, kindergarten through law school, and it's taught to 1.2 million students per year all over the world, a lot in the United States, Cambodia, and about 12 countries in Europe and Africa, sprinkling in Africa and Asia. And um, 
What we do is we teach human rights within uh, the lesson plans that teachers already have to teach. So it's, it's, they're embedded in the core curriculum. So shall I give you an example of it? Okay, so um, in, uh, so 12 year olds usually in most countries in the world have to take something called language arts. So when I was in school, it was called the English. But now it's <laughs> called language arts. So they have to learn poetry. The first lesson is poetry. So we give the kids two articles about the manufacture of chocolate. 70% of the chocolate consumed in the United States is made by children in child labor or slavery. Okay? So 70% of the time when you eat a chocolate bar, you're touching something that touched the hand of a slave or a child in, in child labor. So that comes as a surprise to most kids. It comes as a surprise to you, right? So um, then the kids have to write a poem in iambic pentameter from the perspective of a child in labor, in child labor or in slavery to Bobby. It's called Dear Bobby, talking about what it's like, how that feels. Okay, so they're learning text analysis. They're learning social emotional learning, empathy and they're also learning poetry, iambic pentameter. And then a couple weeks later, they have to do expository writing. So we give them the same two articles and we give them the name and address of the CEOs of, of, of Mars and Hershey and Godiva, and they have to write a business letter to them explaining what the problem is. So again, they're getting a text analysis they're getting social emotional learning because they're translating something that was an emotional issue into a fact-based issue, which, believe me, is important in every relationship in your life. And, <laughs> and then they're learning, uh, they're learning how to write a business letter. Where does the stamp go, et cetera? And then the third lesson plan happens in October. We give them a five by eight card and they have to consolidate their thoughts into one sentence and uh, say, you know, 70% of the chocolate made in the United States, consumed in the United States is made by children in slavery or child labor. And then they say, but there's a solution and it's fair trade chocolate. And then they scotch tape a piece of fair trade chocolate to the card. And then on Halloween, they do reverse trick or treat. So whenever somebody gives them a piece of chocolate, they say, thank you so much, can I give you this? And by the end of those three lesson plans and through class discussion, they start to see themselves as a human rights defender. So it's a transformative, yeah, right? Yeah, so it's a transformative experience and it makes school fun, I mean, really interesting. There's a reason for math, or you know, there's a reason for English. So um, anyway, that's what we do, and we have lesson plans starting from kindergarten going through law school, and we would so love to bring that here to Ohio and to Cleveland in particular. So if anybody's interested, um, let me know. And also, could I ask my colleagues, Linda Laney and Gail Everts, to stand up? Could you guys stand up? So you can also talk to them. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. To my left, you will be my, our last question. Okay. Hello, Mrs. Kennedy. Um, my name is Tara Seibel, and I am a political and social cartoonist. I work on human rights through um, words and pictures. And my question to you is, um, most importantly, I'm, I'm a mother. And the first thing that I think about when I wake up in the morning, I'm riddled with 
anxiety trying to figure out what is going on with these school shootings today. Mm -hmm. And today we're talking about 50 years later, gun violence, violence, um, you know, RFK, human rights, you, what your father would think about what is happening today. And I understand that there is a whole gun issue Pandora box that I don't even want to open up right now. The other Pandora box is the question, what is the ill seed in our society that is causing that child, that person, to go into these places and do this thing? Because I feel like it's a disease within our society that's making this happen. And what can we all do to try and fix it? Thank you. Thank you. So I think, uh, you know, we first of all vote. Um, yeah, I was with, uh, yeah. I was, I was with Martin Luther King's um, lawyer yesterday, and he was so great. He said, if you don't like T-R-U-M-P, V-O-T-E. <laughs> so you got to vote. We got to vote. We got to vote those guys out. We got to let, you know, the NRA, one of their great strengths is they are one-issue voters. And if you care about this, um, you got to go out and say, I'm going to vote against you if you're, if you're allowing this to happen. So that's one thing. But, you know, we can't just say there's nothing I can do because those crazy people in Washington. Because that just uh, lets us all off the hook. And so I think your question was so good. What is it about our society? What the heck are we doing? Why do we, why are we deify guns in this country? We make them into something that's great to be praised. We, we put them on television with our children. We put them in all the stores. We talk about them. We make movies about how great they are. We laud the courage of somebody who goes into a room and kills 50 people on TV. Oh my God, well, how are we shocked by this? I think that we really need to go back and say, how do we treat one another? How do we, how do we teach the next generation to treat one another with dignity and with love and understanding? And how do we resolve conflict, which in ways that, that, that aren't about violence or domination. And um, I think it's hard right now, in a way, because there's so much of that language coming out of Washington, but it's also, that also makes it easier for us, because we can say that's one way of, of walking through life, but we have a different vision. And, um, and, and we're gonna practice that vision in our in our families, in our uh, uh, schools, in our places of worship, and in our workplaces. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend. Thank you. you are wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, we we have been enjoying a special city club forum commemorating the mindless menace of violent speech featuring Kerry Kennedy, president of Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights and Antioch Baptist Church Senior Pastor Reverend Todd C. Davidson. Today's forum is sponsored by PNC Bank. Our venue partner is the Global Center for Health and Innovation. We're grateful for your support. We welcome guests at tables hosted by Baldwin-Wallace University, the Center for Community Solutions, Franz Ward LLP, Friends of Fred Vieiro, the Greater Cleveland School Superintendent Association, the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, Lutheran Metropolitan Ministry, Porter Wright, PWC, Small Business Financial Incorporated, 
and Ulmer and Byrne LLP. Lastly, and this is important please, we want to welcome students from Facing History New Tech, Glenville High School in Tremont, Montessori. <laughs> Student participation in City Club forums is provided by many foundations, including the William M. Weiss Foundation. We thank all of you for being here today. And one more time, please, a big round of applause for Ms. Kerry Kennedy and Reverend Todd Davison. Thank you so much. It was fantastic. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.